following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. To my sermon. Well, I'm sure happy to be here this morning. Sure thankful that... um, (coughs) Tim felt comfortable asking me to, to speak, um, and it is a real privilege for me to do this. Uh, some of you may have seen my, um, my speech at the sports awards ceremony the other night. Yeah, no, no. And in keeping in that theme, I'd like to present this sermon in song. So I've rewritten the lyrics to the entire score of Les Mis. I'm just kidding. Actually, before I came in up here, Ed said, you're not going to sing, are you, Mike? (laughs) No, I'm not going to (coughs) sing. Many of you have seen the 1960 Disney film about an orphan named Pollyanna, who, despite very difficult and tragic experiences in her life, is an extremely cheerful and optimistic girl. Everyone who meets her soon learns that Pollyanna tries to find something to be glad about in every situation. She lives with her Aunt Polly, who is a rich, stern, and cold-hearted woman and who wields wields influence over the whole town, including even the Reverend Ford. One day, Pollyanna is given a note by her Aunt Polly to deliver to Reverend Ford. When Pollyanna finds him, she sees him practicing his sermon for the upcoming Sunday and watches him for a mile, a while without him noticing. He is passionately deser- delivering his text. And he saith unto them, the wicked shall be punished. If you are an enemy to each other, then you are an enemy to God. Week after week, the same wickedness persists, the same dissension, the same belligerence, the same feuding until you are 10,000 times more abominable in the eyes of God than the most hateful, venomous, vile, vicious, And then he stops, and he sees Pollyanna watching him, and they have a conversation. During the conversation, Pollyanna tells Reverend Ford that her father had been a minister, too, and preached the same angry way as he did, until one day he read a quote by Abraham Lincoln, which said, When you look for the bad in mankind, expecting to find it, you surely will. Pollyanna goes on to explain that this quote changed the way her father preached. From then on, her father looked for the good in people. And his sermons focused on the happy texts in the Bible, of which there are over 800. Well, this conversation has a profound influence on the good reverend. And he announces in church the next Sunday, much to the chagrin of Aunt Polly, that he is done with fire and brimstone. And that he is going to read and focus on a different happy text each week for the next 16 years. I was asked this past fall to preach at our home church in Colorado. I was given almost complete discretion and freedom for my sermon. In fact, the only real condition given to me was that I pick a psalm. Any psalm. Well, I, much to the... much to the delight of Pollyanna and Reverend Ford, was pretty sure I would choose a happy text. It would necessarily need to focus on happy words like, let the nations be glad or sing for joy or 
For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I asked a few trusted friends and family members for their counsel, and they gave gave a number of excellent suggestions, all of which were in line with what I was already considering. I was well on my way to preaching a happy sermon from a happy text. And then the unexpected suggestion from someone whose counsel I highly regard. Mikey wrote, you might want to consider Psalm 2. So I opened my Bible and I read the first verse and it wasn't happy. Then I read the second and the third and it got less and less happy. So I said to myself, well, at least I still have 149 other Psalms to choose from. And I dismissed Psalm 2 from my happy thoughts. But the Lord was working on my heart, challenging me to go a different direction. What about all those texts which aren't so happy? Ones Ones which focus on man's sin and God's anger, wrath, and justice. How do we reconcile the cheerful, happy texts with these sobering and distressing verses? Well, I know one thing. We cannot reconcile these texts in the Word of God by shying away from them, ignoring them, and pretending they don't exist. And while a child of God must never use Scripture to be mean, manipulative, and abusive, or present God in an unbalanced or unbiblical way, we must strive to find and tell the truth in love, even when the message seems grim and severe. So here I am this morning to speak what God has laid on my heart concerning Psalm 2. Is there sadness and despair or happiness and hope to be found here? What lies in store for the people of this world, both past and present? Wrath or refuge? (coughs) Let's discover that this morning. Just before I get into the text, I want to I just want to give a warning There are two parts to this sermon, and you might think that as I come to the end of the text, I'm finished. You might think, oh, wow, that was quick. Well, you'd be wrong. And um, so (laughs) I'm warning you ahead of time. When I get to to verse 12 and finish, there's still some some sermon left. Psalm 2 totals 12 verses, and its structure is friendly to the teacher or the preacher in that it has four stanzas. Each of the stanzas is three verses long and represents a theme or a scene which flows into the next one. It is the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament and is the only psalm mentioned by number in the New Testament. As I will soon expand on, it is also one of the messianic psalms as it points towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are going to cover the whole psalm today, but we're going to have to hustle through. So let's begin by reading the first three verses. (laughs) Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? See what I mean? It is not a happy start. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Perplexed and bewildered, King David, the author of this psalm, begins out by crying, Why? The nations, peoples, kings, and rulers around him are pursuing a course which will most assuredly lead to a vain, hopeless, and purposeless end. 
they rage and they plot against their creator and against his anointed, and it makes no sense to David. We don't know the exact details of when and why David wrote this psalm, but it is unmistakable that he is in turmoil at the intentional rebellion against all that he knows to be good and right. He is baffled by the foolishness of the peoples around him, the the mutinous thoughts and actions of the kings of the earth. Verse 3 sums up the heart's desire of the nations surrounding David. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Have you ever seen a child, maybe an infant or a toddler, and they're uncomfortable, they want to be somewhere else rather than their parents' arms, but mom or dad picks them up, and you see, and their face turns red, and their body gets stiff, and they're fighting, and they're in the arms of their parents, and all they want to do is get down, so they're thrashing around, and they want to get down, but what they don't know is the safest place for them to be right then is in their arms, and if they actually get their way, and they are dropped, they are in tremendous peril. They don't know what they're doing. This is exactly what's happening in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be in the arms of God. They want their own way. We hardly need to be reminded that from even before David's time and right up until present day, manifestation of this same folly and vain thinking by countries and peoples of the world is clearly evident. How long does it take you to think of an individual or a country since the time of David who has demonstrated these, these same kinds of evil thoughts, intentions, and actions? How about the last 100 years? How about in the last few months? The current almost unimaginable atrocities being committed against Christians in the different parts of the world testifies to the fact that the nations continue to rage and plot against God and his people. And often we find ourselves crying out as David did. Why? In the next stanza, we are going to see God's response. But first, I would like to direct your attention to the phrase in verse 2, against the Lord and his anointed. When David wrote this psalm, he almost surely was thinking about himself or any king of Israel to come as God's anointed. And the text would make sense if read that way. But we know from a passage in Acts that Psalm 2 is ultimately about a king greater than any human king who will sit on the throne in Judah. Let's look at Acts 4, 24 through 28. <coughs> Peter and John have just been released from custody in Jerusalem. And they are praying this prayer together with the other believers. (coughs) Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. King David then, whether he knew it or not, was clearly prophesying through the influence of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, 
God's son, the anointed one. And while we do not have time to go into the scriptural intricacies of this prophecy, understanding this context brings significant depth and fullness to the rest of this chapter. So let's go on to verses 4 through 6 to see God's response to the knuckleheads we read about in the first three verses. <laughs> 4, 5, and 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, just to be clear, verse 4 does not qualify this text as a happy text. Yes, it says God laughs, but it cannot and is not a laugh of mirth and joy. God hears and sees the absurdity of their rage, their conniving, their useless, futile efforts to break free of him. It is ridiculous folly. It is the height of arrogance and foolishness. And God's response is a laugh of disdain and scorn. <clears throat> but this mirthless laughter is short-lived as it seems to quickly change to a more understandable wrath and fury. If we stopped the text right here and you had to guess what happens next, what might you guess would take place? Most of us would probably assume God would immediately rain down holy and righteous judgment. And in fact, there were times in the Bible where we see this happen. <clears throat> but we are fortunate to be able to keep reading. And his response is surprising, but still very much in keeping with his character. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Isn't this awesome? In a preemptive move, God has already thwarted the plans of those who are rebelling against him. He has already established that his son will be king that, king, that Jesus will rule and reign as king, and he knows what the outcome is going to be. <coughs> One of my favorite movies is Searching for Bobby Fischer. <coughs> it's an older movie. It's about a prodigy uh, who is, is brilliant at chess. But he has a nemesis, an arch rival named Jonathan. And as the two progress up, they eventually meet each other. <coughs> in the final match, the championship, and they start playing. And they're moving, they're moving. <clears throat> All of a sudden, Jonathan takes Josh's queen, and he smiles, and he hits the clock. And Josh sits and stares at the board. And he's, he's looking, and he's thinking, and he's studying. And all of a sudden, he reaches out his hand, and he offers Jonathan his hand in a draw. Well, the only way you'd do this is uh, you would shake hands to say, okay, I, I admit, we're, we're tied. This is a draw. That's how it's going to end. And Jonathan looks at him, and he's, he's wondering, what in the world? And he looks at the board, and he goes, I'm not going to offer you, uh, accept your draw. Oh, thank you very much for my cough. You notice that. You know, I've had a chronic cough for 10 years. And it's nice to have this, because I can turn away. But I once wore a microphone on my head. Every time I'd turn, it didn't matter. Still coughing into the mic. Anyway, so Jonathan is, 
is considering, then all of a sudden he smirks and he says, I have your queen. Keep playing. And Josh says, I know what's going to happen. Jonathan says, I'm going to win. And they keep playing. And sure enough, move, move, move. All of a sudden, Josh makes a move and Jonathan's taken by surprise. And, and, and he's concerned. Makes another move and he realizes he's trapped. And Josh has him in checkmate. While the people of earth think they know something. While they think they have planned ahead. They really only know a few moves, if that. But God, on the other hand, knows his next 10 million moves. He has already won, and the nations just don't know it. So now we have seen the wickedness of men. We have seen the response of God, and we now will see the anointed one declaring his rights as king. Slide 7, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The anointed one is now coming forward and declaring his rightful place as the ruler of the earth. There is nothing which is not under his control. No nation, no ruler, no people, no thing. His father has given over to him the reign and judgment of the world. But that's only good news for everyone, isn't it? There seems to be a growing sentiment outside and inside the church that Jesus is all about love and nothing else. For many, the entirety of Jesus' character is summed up in hugs, rainbows, butterflies, and good feelings. I have a friend from college, MK. I was a good friend of his. I followed him on Facebook. He got married, had some children, lost touch the last year, recently saw uh, he reemerged on Facebook. He had divorced his wife. And he was just announcing his marriage to another man. He states as a, uh, to sum up why he did this, he and his husband put one line. This is how we're going to rationalize and justify and explain what we're doing. God is love and love is love. Ultimately, many people, they don't want the gospel and Jesus to define their lifestyle. And it makes no difference about their lifestyle, their choices, their obedience. Because how could Jesus ever really stay mad at us? Sure, we might hurt his feelings a little, but he's all about love. So we're good, right? When my children were growing up, we had this cool book, and you'd read in it, and it would be something like the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they came across a McDonald's with camel burgers and farro fries. And then you'd turn the next page, and there's all these children screaming out, that's not what the Bible says. 
And then it would go on to explain what really happened. And I feel like I'm crying that more and more these days. When I hear the things and see the things that people are doing, I want to scream out, that's not what the Bible says. So what does it say concerning Jesus' response to those who turn away from him and follow their own way? Verse 9 sums it up very well. Verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Have you ever seen one of those slow-motion cameras capture the breaking of a clay pot with a baseball bat? I have. There is no recovery for that pot. It is destroyed forever. And that's the word picture we are given here. Jesus is coming like a rod of iron and he will wield himself against his enemies. And just in case you might think this is purely an Old Testament concept, somehow changed through the incarnation of Jesus and through his death and resurrection, we have many examples in the New Testament of what it will look like when Jesus brings judgment to mankind. Here is just one of them, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We cheapen and negate the true and complete nature of Jesus if we suggest his love does not allow for and include this kind of justice and judgment. So, is this it? Is this the only end which those in verses 1 through 3 and all throughout history who have been like them can expect? I am so glad there are three more verses. 9, 10, and 11. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. <clears throat> Earlier I said verse 6 was awesome, but so is this. Why is David telling the kings to be wise? Why is he warning the rulers of the earth? Is it possible that God is going to give them a second chance? When I was back in the States, I went to a Denver Broncos football game with my brother Andy. <clears throat> We're deep into the game, and a guy comes across with his girlfriend uh, he he has a he's he's two rows behind, but he's got an in in our row. So he comes right next to me, and now he's got to turn and go up the steps. So he's climbing. Now this man is inebriated, and this man has bought a new pic, pitcher or glass of beer, and it is to the brim. It's it's spilling over. So he I see him, and I'm kind of helping him up, and and he takes a step. Well, when he takes a step forward up, his foot slips. And it slams into the, 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 the seat in front of him up above, but it pushes him backwards. Backwards onto who? Backwards onto me. And backwards onto me came him and his entire huge thing of beer right over my head. <laughs> now, now listen. I, after things were settled, and he, he did he did. Uh, ask profusely for my forgiveness. But I must admit, I was having a hard time forgiving him for an infraction as small and unintentional as that. And 
I, I certainly wasn't that keen about giving him another chance. Hey, buddy, let's try that again. Hey, here's another full drink. You go to the end of the row. You just try your best to get back to your seat. And I'm just I'm cheering for you, buddy. I'm going to give you another chance. But here is God offering another chance to a bunch of rebels, people he created in his own image, who rage against him and are plotting his demise. Kings and rulers of the earth, here's he, he's saying, you cannot win this. Your doom is certain. You deserve nothing except punishment for me. And I am going to give you another chance. These are beautiful verses. If anyone ever questions God's demonstration of patience, mercy, forgiveness, they need to read these verses. And then I love how David gives some protocol advice for these folks. People, don't ever forget who this is. And even though he loves you and even though he has forgiven you, you must serve him and rejoice in him with fear and trembling. There is no contradiction here. Imagine being outside during an awesome display of lightning or watching the best, loudest fireworks display ever. Included in the joy would be a mixture of awe and trembling. How much more so when entering into the presence of the king of the universe? I would love to talk more about the first half of verse 12. But suffice it to say that kiss the sun is another way to say how important it is to show in humility our allegiance and loyalty to the king of kings. To bow to him, to defer to him, to kiss him is our only appropriate and suitable response. And it's a beautiful word picture. Well, if these nations, peoples, kings and rulers do have a change of heart, do repent, do bow in humbleness and adoration to the eternal king. What summary does David give? He says this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are are all who take refuge in him. This is one of the finest, most eternally profound statements in the Bible. And we must not miss the message. If we choose to go our own way, turn our back on him, if we replace the one and only true God with idols of our own or the world's own making... There will be no refuge from the storm of God's just and righteous wrath. But if we acknowledge our sin, if we repent and make the king of king our king, the Lord our Lord, he will grant indescribably beautiful refuge and blessing. Oh, and did anyone catch it? The first word of the last slide. Are we? Nursery. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my sermon. No, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm hoping 236, your child is fine. Um, do we have that slide or are we, are we off of that? Hey, there. The first word, blessed. Now, can anyone tell me what the exact meaning of this word blessed means? Next slide. What's the almost exact translation of blessed? Come on. Somebody knows. Happy. Happy. Blessed equals happy. This text is a happy text after all. 
and maybe they could turn this sermon into a Disney movie. <clears throat> All right, so we come to the end of this text, and I am left to consider the application to us today here in Chiang Mai. I'd like to end considering how this text sharpens and focuses us towards fulfilling the Great Commission, towards fulfilling the task given to us by Jesus to be a light to the world. <clears throat> I realize that in many ways I am preaching to the choir as I emphasize the importance of declaring the gospel to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth. But that's so much of the New Testament, isn't it? Preaching to the choir, reminding brothers and sisters of the fundamental truths about God, his character, his word, and the work of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Bringing to mind again and again the importance of living a life of obedience so that our Father will be honored so that others will see him and come to know him? There's a particular question I have been asked regularly since we moved overseas 16 years ago. <clears throat> so when were you called to the mission field? I don't know how I always answered that question, but I know how I answer it now. Ah, things are just going all over the place up here. I know how I answer it now, and it's probably just a little different answer than I used to give. I was 20 years old in a chapel at Trinity Western University. A speaker came to speak <coughs> to us on Isaiah chapter 6. You all know what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. <coughs> Isaiah has a, uh, a vision He's up in the heavens. He's before the throne of God. There's smoke. There's cherubim, seraphim. Things are shaking. <clears throat> and suddenly he is confronted with the depth, the breadth, the awfulness of his sin. And he is undone. And he is offered forgiveness. He does nothing to deserve it. And he is offered forgiveness. And he is immediately a new person. And the Lord asks, who can I send? And his immediate response after experiencing the forgiveness of God, the Almighty, is to say, here am I, send me. And the fascinating thing to me at that point, when he, it just occurred to me, he has no idea where he's going to be sent. He has no idea what's next for him. It doesn't matter, though. All that matters to him is bowing himself in allegiance and surrender to his, his God. My life was changed in chapel that day, but not because I decided to become a missionary, but because I committed to do anything the Lord required of me, no matter what. I wanted nothing except to offer my complete and absolute allegiance and devotion to our mighty and loving God. <clears throat> I felt then and I feel now there is no other appropriate response. And I believe that this is true for all God's children. God's people who are called to love him, worship him, and obey him. And the text today speaks very clearly to this. But the text also speaks very clearly about something else. There are people today around the world living their lives in vain. Raging against God and humanity. Plotting ways to break the bonds of goodness and mercy. And they need to be warned of the eternal peril they face. They need to hear about the God who loves them and desires reconciliation and offers it through the blood 
of the king who died for them. Who has God chosen to participate in sharing the good news to the desperate, the lost, and the hopeless? Who has always done that from the time of Abraham up until now? It's always been his people. And it has always involved some measure of going, some measure of trust, some measure of risk. I'd like to look at just a few quotes and verses. <coughs> this is by Charles Spurgeon. If there, is, if there be any one point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at a white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot t- tolerate lukewarmness, it is in the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. <coughs> Next, lost people matter to God, and so they must matter to us. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, I have but one passion. It is he, it is he alone. The world is the field and the field is the world and henceforth that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to preach without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All the world. Count Zinzendorf also said, Missions after all is simply this. Every heart with Christ is a missionary. Every heart without Christ is a mission field. <clears throat> now, none of us can predict or, predict or dictate how the Spirit of God will specifically lead us in regards to proclaiming the wonderful, great news of the gospel. But I would like to ask you this morning, are you still willing to do anything God would require as a step of obedience to him and to make his name known in all the lands. Many of us could probably say that this has been true in our lives at some point or another. But what about today? Where are you right now in your heart before your Savior? Are you so profoundly grateful that God has given you eternal refuge in his arms that you will give up anything for him Go anywhere for him and tell anyone about him, regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences. And by the way, the biggest, hardest, most difficult decision of my entire life was not going to Mongolia. It was going from Mongolia to another place. And I had to come again after 12 years there to say, am I still willing to do this? And I needed to be reminded of Isaiah chapter 6 again. I want to end with this thought and then final verses from Revelation. (laughs) There are people from Chiang Mai, in Chiang Mai. There are people all over Thailand. There are people from this entire region, from Nepal, India, Pakistan, all of South Asia, from China, Korea, North America, Russia, Turkey, Mongolia, Spain, England, Germany, France, all of Western Europe, Africa, the Middle East, throughout the entire world, throughout history who have turned from their wicked ways and turned towards the one true God. 
because the followers of Jesus have loved him more than they loved himself, themselves, have counted it all joy to do whatever he has asked of them, have gone wherever he has required, and have proclaimed him in love, truth, boldness, and joy. With this in mind, I close with these verses. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.